Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Suddenly, we are at episode 150 of the Super Psyched podcast. To celebrate this milestone, I thought I would interview the most influential man in my life. In fact, he was the guy who gave me the idea to start this podcast in the first place. If you haven't guessed already who that person is, it's my father, Dr. Richard Dorsey. My dad worked as a physician who spent the bulk of his career as the chief of radiology at Kaiser South San Francisco. He was also a clinical professor of radiology at UCSF Medical School and a world-class mammographer. If that's not enough, among his other accomplishments, in 2010, he was awarded an honorary doctorate in public service from his alma mater, Tufts University. In spite of all of these accomplishments, what impresses me most about my dad and the reason I want him on this episode is that he has been doggedly committed to lifelong learning. Lifelong learning is a central theme of this podcast, and my dad could be the poster boy for lifelong learning. I mean, can you imagine a man in his 60s being an exchange student in Central America with a homestay mother who's in her 40s? And he did it solely for the joy of learning and not for any other benefit. In this episode, you will hear about a man who has put himself through all types of self-induced challenges to learn. And I believe you will also hear just how thoughtful and joyful he is as a result. So listen in as my father and I talk about the joys and benefits of lifelong learning. Dr. Richard Dorsey, who I will be calling dad on this episode, a hearty welcome to Super Psyched. Uh, thank you so much. Dad, you could be the poster boy for lifelong learning, which is a central tenet of this podcast. And I'm so excited to have my listeners learn from you on how much joy can be derived and how they might be able to implement some of the ideas that have enriched your life so profoundly. You'll get to benefit like I have from your love of learning, which has been positively contagious to me, and I'm so grateful. Truly, every year of your life, you are changing, learning, and growing measurably. And I'm wondering if you could share with the listeners where this drive for lifelong learning came from. Well, I actually think it started with my parents. My parents were both first-generation Americans, and both of them wanted to go to school after high school. My father couldn't afford it because his parents were too poor, and my mother got to go to one year of college, and then the money ran out, and it was during the time of the Depression, and my parents just stressed to me over and over again how important it was to be educated. So not only did it mean going to college, but it also meant continuing to learn. That's amazing. And it seems almost as though the fuel has been gratitude, the recognition that what you've been given is a gift, the opportunity to learn, and that you don't take that for granted. That for many people, the opportunity to learn doesn't really present itself as readily because they are too busy working so hard that by the end of their shift, they've got nothing left. And yet 
one of the things I know about your dad is he said, work with your head, not with your hands. And so that's what you did. You suffered a lot on the way to get to work with your head. You were making crap money, living in really bad situations on your way through college and medical school subsequently. And then, of course, all of the other fiery hoops you jumped through in order to become a physician. But it sounds like there is a recognition, the opposite of entitlement, the recognition that this is a privilege to get to learn. It certainly is a privilege. And when I think back to my college days, I think what I learned in college was learning how to learn. So it was just the beginning. One of my favorite courses, I had only three electives as a pre-med at Tufts University in 1956. There were so many required courses. I had three electives for my whole four years. And during one of those electives was in the opera. And I learned how to learn an opera. And so that just began my learning process rather than feeling like I've now graduated from college and I know everything. What's so interesting about your learning how to learn about opera is opera was not going to really contribute to your career as a radiologist, except that it made you happier and perhaps more energetic when you were approaching your work. We're going to be talking a lot about intrinsic learning versus extrinsic learning, intrinsic for the sake of the love of the learning versus extrinsic, the things that it will provide for you. I guess there was something about the scarcity, having only four courses during your undergrad and recognizing, wow, I get to, it was three? Three. Three courses. Sorry, I misheard you. Three courses. And so these were like desserts for you, so to speak. I chose opera, ethics, and psychology. Oh, wow. And all the rest were required courses to get into medical school. Opera, ethics, and psychology. When you look at it, back at it now, what do you think kind of predicated those choices? They were subjects that really interested me. I wanted to learn how to learn about those things. Ethics were just always important to me. And how do you study ethical systems? It was just fantastic. I remember in that course, the teacher gave a test that was just fantastic. The question was, should atomic bomb testing be continued above ground? And then he made us sit for 20 minutes just to think. So we had 40 minutes to write on it. And then we had to write what a logical positivist would have thought, what a Deweyist would have thought, and one other system, which I don't remember now, but I remember thinking, this is the way education should be. Wow. And specifically, when you say this is the way education should be, I infer that it's the ability to look at a thing from every angle possible. Indeed. I think that one of my experiences from my college years was taking a course in advanced genetics. I chose advanced genetics. It fit into my requirements. And one of the things we had to do was write a paper, a long paper for the course. And my teacher asked each one of us to write the subject we wanted to write on, and he put it in a fishbowl. And at one of the classes, he took out each paper and read to the class what each of us was going to write our paper on. When he got to mine, it said, the genetics of cancer. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Dorsey is going to write a paper on the genetics of cancer. There is no genetics of cancer. But Dorsey is going to write a paper on it. 
and this was before the internet, I didn't back down. I was interested in the genetics of cancer because I had this sneaking suspicion that there was a genetics to cancer. And it was not commonly known at that time. And I could only do my research in the library, but I found some areas in tropical fish where the genetics of cancer was proven. And I wound up getting a really good grade in the course and learning something myself and even teaching my teacher. How did he respond when, after having made that massive proclamation, there's no genetics for cancer, and yet you showed that there was? How was that received? He responded with an A+. (laughs) (laughs) He liked that I had been able to show him something that he didn't know about. That's really cool. And I'm guessing that it also fueled something within you in terms of your hunger to learn more. What it did was it actually fueled an interest in cancer for all my life. That in my professional career, I thought I was interested in finding a cure to cancer. And then I realized that I wasn't looking for a cure to cancer, but my cure to cancer was finding early diagnosis and diagnosing a cancer early as a radiologist with mammography, I could find a way of curing the patient from the cancer. So it was less about coming up with some type of vaccination, but more about using what was available to you, which was better diagnostics for a better prognosis and a better likelihood of actually bringing the person into remission. Yes, it was. It was an interesting time because when I was interested in helping with improving the cure rate from breast cancer, it was not popular. People didn't talk about it. People would say, she has cancer. And they would whisper it. You didn't talk about it in polite company. And I worked, as you know, in Kaiser in South San Francisco. And I was one of a few radiologists who was interested in promoting the early detection of screening mammography before it was popular. And it seemed like there were some doctors who felt like there was no way of doing this because it would bankrupt the country if we did screening mammograms on all women over the age of 40. And it was like being in the early days, like being the enemy of the people when I was come up with that, as did two other of my colleagues from other hospitals. And I look back at that and I realized that was one of the areas in which I really made a difference. And I feel really proud of is promoting something that wasn't popular. And how did your dedication to learning itself allow you to perhaps be the Don Quixote as you were battling the system and actually, like Don Quixote, successfully doing so, at least my understanding of Don Quixote, you succeeded at actually getting a system to change its view on this type of early detection mammography. Yes, I think I really did. Because when I go to Kaiser now, I see there are signs saying, just walk in for your screening mammogram. You don't even have to schedule an appointment. And when I started, it was not popular, to say the least. And the way I I did this was coming up with facts and figures. 
and finding that in Sweden, that there were two studies, they were able to do a control city and a non-control city that had screening mammograms. And they were showing that there was a one-third reduction in the death rate from breast cancer by doing screening mammography. And even though this wasn't well known, and even though people thought that maybe it wasn't true, I became convinced it was true. And all I did was lecture to people on what I found. What's amazing here is I think of Sherlock Holmes. I know you and I both love Sherlock, the BBC series. But you remind me in this moment of Sherlock in that he took such exquisite joy in the mere just dissecting a case. And what you basically had to do was be Sherlock Holmes and find out that in Sweden, there's a one third reduction in deaths. Folks in my medical system have to know about this and I will continue this fight. And it seems like it was your love of learning that actually really kind of led the way in certain ways, in addition to your desire for justice. At one point, I was given permission to go around to every Kaiser in the Bay Area and give a lecture at their medical meetings on the importance of doing screening mammography. And I was able to allay some of the fears because there were some doctors who believed that the screening mammography would cause more Mm. cancers than it would detect. But that was just patently untrue. I remember hearing you on an NPR interview talking about this exact subject, and there was somebody with great vitriol throwing stuff your way, saying it causes more harm than it does good, and you had to retain your composure and just basically disabuse her of this. Right. I gave them the reasons that I believed that wasn't the case. So far, I've been correct that it really saves lives. That must feel great. Some other things that you did very early on, one of them was you started a service organization at Tufts called the Leonard Carmichael Society, which I believe just celebrated its 60th year of existence, something crazy like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of the most popular service organizations, maybe the most popular service organization at Tufts. And it actually led you to get an honorary doctorate shortly after I got my doctorate, just as I became Dr. Dorsey, you became double Dr. Dorsey, which was pretty funny. And it was delightful to see you have that conferred upon you by the president of the university. But what led you to have the guts to start a club at the age of 18 or whatever you were at the time, 18 or 19? I think I was really influenced by my maternal grandfather and my mother. Both of them were really interested in service to other people. And they showed me by the way they lived that this is what they thought was important. And I think I picked it up by osmosis that it was really important to do service. And so when in my freshman year, one of the people that I knew from in my high school days, a professor at Tufts who had been at NYU came up to Tufts the first year I started. He invited me to his house and invited me to bring a few students to talk about what was missing on the campus. And we concluded that what was missing was a volunteer service organization, which would find volunteer jobs for students and place them in those volunteer jobs and screen them to be sure that they were acceptable. And it took us two years to get it off the ground. 
but it started in Dr. Patterson's home with a few other students. And I was fortunate enough to be the president for the first two years of its organization. And we did, we did lots of amazing things. My particular service was to take a young girl out of a state mental institution one day every two weeks and one afternoon. And I would take her for experience out in the community. And when I think back on that, things were really different in those days because the students weren't really checked to be sure that we were okay. We didn't know about things. It wasn't an issue when I was there, but things are different now where the students are really checked to be sure that they understand what they can and cannot do. That's amazing. And one of the things that I'm really getting and one of the things I've always noticed about you is you became an adult long before you were an adult. You had to grow up very quickly at the young age of 18 in a very precocious manner. Here you are founding a club when other people were out drinking beer and getting completely wasted. And it seems that you reached adulthood early and paradoxically needed to reach childhood late. Does that seem like a fair assessment? I think that's really fair. When I think about it, my father was a jock in high school and he didn't spend a lot of time with his studies. And he drummed into me over and over again that it was important for me to learn things. And it wasn't a hard sell. Once I started, I just really liked learning. I can remember reading books like Crime and Punishment and liking them so much. And so sometimes I would fake an illness to stay home from school so that I could finish the book. And it was not an assigned reading. It was just, I wanted to learn about this. Wow. And I'm wondering if I could go back to the idea of hitting childhood late. In order to compensate, you've needed to learn how to be a kid when you were not a kid. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about finding your inner child later in life how you allowed that to unfold and how you might have cultivated a world in which you could find your playfulness or your inner child as a grown-up. It took me a long time to learn that there could be a real joy from baseball. And I didn't really understand it because even though I grew up in the golden age of baseball in New York City, mm. somehow I didn't get the message about the fun that one could have from baseball. And then I had this son <laughs> who was interested in the San Francisco Giants, who insisted that I take him to a, a baseball game, the second baseball game in my life. And if I wanted to be able to relate to you, I would have to sit down and watch baseball games. And suddenly I was liking baseball. and. The stats of the players were really important to me. And I wanted to go and listen to baseball games or see baseball games with you or even on my own. So I remember one night I was driving to a meeting and I was listening to a baseball game and Barry Bonds was up and it was the end of the ninth and it was two outs and there were people on bases. And I'm talking to the radio and I'm saying, <laughs> they're not going to pitch to you, Barry. I know they're not going to pitch to you. And oddly enough, they did. And he hit a home run and they won the game. And I thought, how did I get from not understanding anything about baseball 
to talking to the radio by myself in the car. That's amazing. And one of the other massive technological leaps, so to speak, that you incurred was you kind of transformed yourself from a super serious guy to a guy who at his birthday would say, everybody bring jokes. That's what we're doing. We're just telling jokes over breakfast. That's the deal. Yeah, I really liked that. It took me a long time to get to that stage. I joined a men's group in my late 50s and I realized that I was so damn serious. <laughs> so that, serious. Yeah, that I really didn't have much in the way of fun. So in this group, I made the decision I was going to make a birthday breakfast for myself and I was going to invite only men. And I was going to tell them that instead of presents, what I wanted them to do is bring an off-color joke. <laughs> and I would rent the back room of a breakfast place like a Denny's or something like that. And we would go around the circle and tell jokes. And it sort of healed my childhood not knowing that I was a child. Yeah. I became a child in my 50s. Yeah, you were like a young gentleman at four. Doing very grown-up things almost immediately, it seems. And then the last party that I made like that for myself was at my home where I invited people. I had friends from different parts of my life that didn't know each other, and I wanted to introduce them to each other. So I wrote two things about each person, and I told everybody they had to find the person, but they could just ask outright, are you the person that is the surfer dude. <laughs> and they did that. And then I asked them all to bring the off-color jokes. We told those off-color jokes. And from there, one of my friends started talking about his father. And the conversation went from off-color jokes to each one of us talking about our father. And I thought, I've really come a long way with wow. this. Wow. It's stunning just to hear it phrased that way, you know, as well as I know you throughout the years to hear you say that. And one of the hallmarks of you being such a learner and a man of perpetual surprise to me, I remember you got to retire rather early. You'd set yourself up and you were in great health. I think you were 59, 58 when you decided to retire. And you asked me a question. I remember even where we were. We were in the Fresh Choice parking lot. And you said, Adam, after I retire, I want to learn Spanish. And I know that you had some background in Spanish. I also knew that you had the rough equivalent to language acquisition as a tone deaf person has to singing. And I talk about that a lot on the podcast, not to obviously to roast you, but to actually toast you because of the fact that in spite of the fact that you are not a natural when it comes to language acquisition, you were totally dedicated to doing it. And I see that in stark contrast to your life as a radiologist who saw well over a million x-rays and had to be right well over a million times in a row. You couldn't afford to be wrong. And here, learning Spanish, you and I both know, you couldn't afford to be right because you have to make mistakes in order to learn a foreign language. You have to be willing to look like a complete moron for a while as you're acquiring this. And I told you the three things you needed to do. You followed them to the letter. And here you are at nearly 84 years old. You spent two weeks, 40 hours of learning in Oaxaca, Mexico with your wife, not for business, but just because 
you like it. Can you talk about learning Spanish over the years and your relationship with it as a non-natural language learner? You're absolutely right. I am not a natural at learning language. And somehow I always loved it, but just wasn't good at it. And I remember my teacher in junior high school introducing me to French. Mm. And the way she did that was she played Carmen and we had to translate the libretto. And I got a love from Mrs. Greenfield's introduction to French. And then when I graduated from college, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to really be fluent in French and I'm going to be able to speak French because I have this belief that a person isn't educated if they can't speak two languages. So, of course, I wanted to be fluent in French. Well, it didn't work out very well because there was no one for me to practice my French with. So over the years, it became clear to me that Spanish would be more useful to me. And while I took no Spanish in in high school or college or junior high, I started studying Spanish at times by going for a week immersion in a foreign country, going to a school. And then I realized I really wasn't there yet. So when I retired from Kaiser, I did what you said. (laughs) I looked up Mr. Davis, your Spanish teacher, (laughs) and he was retiring at exactly the same time I was retiring. I gave the school my telephone number and asked Mr. Davis to call me, which he did. And an hour and a half once a week was my Spanish lesson. I explained to Mr. Davis that I didn't want to learn to read or write. I wanted to be able to speak fluently. And we decided that I would speak rapidly and that I would hear the way Spanish should be spoken. So rather than slavishly learning how to conjugate different verbs, I learned what conjugation was appropriate when Mr. Davis spoke to me. And Mr. Davis didn't correct everything that I said wrong. He only corrected the things that would change the meaning. Because my desire was to talk about thoughts and feelings with people who spoke exclusively Spanish. And you prompted Mr. Davis with that. Right. I told him that this is what I wanted. And there were some who thought that if I wasn't corrected on everything, I wouldn't learn it correctly. But my goal was to speak it, to talk about ideas. Yeah, to be intelligible. Not so that people wouldn't understand what I said. So when it wasn't clear, Mr. Davis corrected me. That's amazing. And Senor Davis, as he was known by me, the best teacher of language, dropped three things in that Fresh Choice parking lot. May Fresh Choice memory be a blessing for those of you who remember that restaurant because it's no longer here. I'd said, do the Pimsler method, listen to the tapes. Back then they were tapes. I said, do a homestay, which you did. And we'll talk about that in a second, which is hilarious to imagine a full grown man being a homestay person having a homestay mom who was far younger. And I said, but third, and the most important thing you could possibly do is hire Senor Davis to be your teacher, because I knew that this was the guy who knew how to teach language better than anybody. He was the basketball coach who could bring everybody to the NBA finals. He was the guy. 
And lo and behold, you developed a real relationship with him on top of the language skills and went to the opera with him and you invited him to my wedding. So he gave a toast in Spanish. It was just pretty wild. I really learned a lot from him. And we talked about things as though we were roommates in medical school, the way I did with my roommate in medical school. We talked about ideas. We talked about politics. And my Spanish lesson was having a conversation with Mr. Davis. That's what it was. Incredible. Yeah, you really got so much out of that experience, including getting to be the homestay student to a younger homestay mom, which I thought was pretty funny. Can you describe at least one of your homestay experiences? I believe there's one particularly in Costa Rica where you had a younger mom and you were the student. Yeah, it was interesting because in that home, they didn't speak any English. So I had to be able to speak Spanish to them if I wanted to make my needs obvious. It was an interesting experience because I had the opportunity in that stay to learn at a school where they wanted me to learn conjugations, as opposed to the school that I just returned from in Oaxaca, where it was 40 hours of conversation. For me, that was much more desirable mm. to be able to talk rapidly and just to talk about things, whatever came into my mind. So it was unusual because I was the oldest person in the school. All the others were young kids from college who were learning Spanish to improve their college grades. I wasn't there to improve my college grade. I was there to learn Spanish. And while it was good, it was better still to have just exclusively conversation. I like that better. That's incredible. And were you at all self-conscious? Here are these college students and here you are, a retired physician north of 60 at this point and still hanging with these people. Well, I was a little bit lonely, frankly, mm. that I didn't establish a relationship with somebody that I could regularly talk to, which would have been good, but I don't have your incredible skill <laughs> of doing that. There's a confluence of skills between us and there are our unique skills that you and I both share that I think you and I both kind of marvel in the other. Yeah. I really appreciate your ability to start a conversation with somebody new. Oh, thanks for that, Dad. I appreciate it. And I certainly appreciate that my family can call you at any hour of the day and say, we got this symptom, what's going on? And you are pretty much always right. So let's go to Guatemala. 1978, out of the blue, you get a call that you're going to be able to work with Project Hope as a volunteer teaching radiology in a mountainous village where there's literally only one licensed radiologist for the whole area outside of Guatemala City. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? It fulfilled a lifelong desire of mine. I always wanted to live in a foreign country. And at that time, I had applied to many, many places to do volunteer work abroad and as a radiologist. Nobody seemed to want a radiologist because in a poor place, they needed to have x-ray equipment and most of them did not. Whereas a surgeon or a pediatrician could go down to a country or up to a country and do his trade. But 
for radiologists, there needed to be x-ray equipment. Well, I got this call from Project Hope saying that there was a residency being formed in radiology in Quetzaltenango, Guatemala. And they wanted me to come and teach radiology residents for two months. And I went home and told my wife, I want to go to Guatemala. (laughs) Do you want to come or would you prefer (laughs) to stay home? And she said, of course I want to come. (laughs) And so our whole family went to Guatemala for two months in 1978. And at that time, the purpose of this program was to train radiologists for the country of Guatemala, because at that time there were 13 radiologists in the whole country. 12 of them were practicing in Guatemala City. One was in one other city and all the rest of the cities and towns of Guatemala had no radiologist. And so not speaking Spanish, I went down there and happily the residents spoke enough English so that I could teach them. But it started a lifelong connection with that radiologist, Chepi Echevarria. And in 2005, I went down again for a month. And at that time, the program was booming. He's Mm. got 17 residents. They're generating radiologists for other parts of Guatemala and for Central America. And I taught mammography to the residents, primary bone tumors to the residents, and mammography techniques to the technologist. And I was thrilled to be there. Oh, that must have been so gratifying. And what an interesting phenomenon. This was after you were the homestay student to the young Costa Rican mom. And here you are in Quetzaltenango, the same mountainous village where you were 27 years prior. And this time they had resources and you had a real friendship by this time with Chepe. And not only that, but it was kind of a fusion between the world in which you had to be perfectionistic and the world which was radiology and the world in which you were required to make mistakes. And I want to actually just lean on that question for a second. After so many hours of needing to be perfect, how were you able to abandon that mode of thinking for the sake of learning Spanish, which requires mistakes? How do you go from perfectionism to welcoming mistakes? One of my favorite mistakes that I made was when I was staying in Chepe's house and having lunch at his lunch table. And I said to him and his wife, uh, gracias por el muerzo. Ahora yo voy arriba para trabajar con mi computa. And they, oh, no. and they broke out in hysterics because I just said <laughs> that I was, thank you for lunch and I'm going upstairs to work with my whore. <laughs> and that was how I learned that computadora is the word for computer, <laughs> not computa. <laughs> with, with my, with computa. Yeah, that would and, not be great. And every time I left the lunch table or the dinner table, his fantastic wife would say to me, via trabaja con tu computa. <laughs> <laughs> so that became not. So I really learned it and I could laugh at myself. Got it. And. And that's, I think, the important thing, that not to be so focused on doing everything right, because you can. If you want to learn something new, you've got to be able to be willing to make mistakes and laugh at yourself. 
I completely agree. And people have asked me, how did you learn this language? And I said, because I'm willing to look like a complete moron. And your coping strategy of imbuing humor is so crucial here. And just laughing at ourselves as we go through this, it's kind of tantamount to self-compassion in some ways, just cultivating the ability to not take ourselves so seriously in those moments. And that seems like that's led you to great success with regard to where you were with Spanish. I mean, you're never going to be a great orator in the language of Spanish, but that's never been your goal. Your goal has always been, I just want to be intelligible. I just want to have fun. In 2005, I was able to teach the radiologist in Spanish. And I took myself less seriously because if I didn't know a word, I just said it in English. And I also taught the anagram there. And I taught the anagram to people in Spanish. And I was living in Guatemala and I was able to do that from what I learned with Mr. Davis. That's incredible. And since you're talking about the Enneagram, I know that's really informed your thinking. It's a personality typing system that is non-pathologizing. It was probably my second interview. I interviewed Dr. B. Chestnut, a colleague of yours in the Enneagram world. You became so fascinated with this model of personality that this radiologist who was sitting quietly alone in a room looking at images all day, then transformed himself into a man who was interested in learning about personality with people. Can you talk about the Enneagram and what it's done for you? What an aha the Enneagram was for me. I think the first and most important thing I learned is that everybody doesn't see the world the same way I do, that there are nine different types in this system, and each one of us sees the world slightly differently. Our attention goes to something different. So in my case, my attention goes to getting the job done. In your case, your attention may go to having fun. (laughs) And no one type is any better than the other. And each type has its strengths and its challenges. I hesitate to call them weaknesses, Because their challenge is when you know about your type, you get the opportunity to modify that. So last Friday night, when we were at the Warriors game and we were halfway through the post-game TV show, and I said to you, Adam, can we go home now? Because I was tired and it was late. You turned to me and said, well, dad, this is like you getting to have a time with Tatiana Troianos after the opera. That's how important this is for my boys and me. And I got it because I know that I get focused on the end point. And if I didn't get it, I would have failed to see the great happiness of my grandsons and you at at interacting with these basketball players. And I would have missed out. And ultimately your own happiness, because in that night, there was a photo of you and Orion, my beautiful wife said, I've never seen your dad so happy. (laughs) How could you not be happy to be with your son and grandsons, but also to be experiencing their world? 
It was really fun. Just a little background, folks. My son was the guy who was called to the Jumbotron before the game to answer a Golden State Warriors history question. And he got it right. And he won us access to the post game with three really major names in basketball. So it was just it was overwhelmingly great. And it was rather funny when you looked at me and said, I think I'm done now. And I'm like, Dad, this is this is a moment we can't just leave. And you had the cognitive flexibility, the flexibility of mind to go with it, which I thought was phenomenal. One of the things I want to talk about, the Enneagram has also really, I think, been a great system to help you cultivate that relationship with your inner child and to just kind of ascertain when your strengths become weaknesses, your ability to get things done is a strength. And yet we know behind every strength is a weakness and behind every weakness is often a strength. One of the things that you've really been doing over the years have been turning yourself kind of from that proverbial human doing to more of a human being, but also being more willing to just kind of not necessarily complete everything so fast. Can you talk about that? One of the big challenges for a person of my Enneagram style, which is type three, the performer, is that I'm focused on getting things done checking it off and moving on to the next thing and not spending the proper time enjoying it. So I remember I was really excited to go to a Roman aqueduct in Provence. And when I got there, it looked just like the photograph. Wow. Okay. I'm here. And now what? Uh, Got to cross that off the list. Right. Do I cross it off the list or Do I spend some time looking at it thinking, I wonder who the people were who actually built this? I wonder what it was like building this. I wonder why they built it. And just spending some time focusing on that. And it's something as an older person that I was able to do. But when I was younger, I would not have considered that at all. I would just have moved on and done the next thing. One of the most exciting things in neuropsychology that kind of describes what's happening with you neurophysiologically is that we now know about plasticity and the fact that neurons that fire together, wire together, and that you can actually teach a, so to speak, an old dog new tricks. And you've been just rocking that every day. You're just kind of saying, to hell with my age, I'm committed to this. Some people maybe think, how nice for you. I can't do that Richard can, but I can't. What would you say to those folks who are thinking, you know, nice for you, but I can't do that? I would say try. (laughs) I would say try because I remember when I decided that I was going to relearn the piano uh, just maybe three or four years ago. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to remember that stuff that I stopped doing when I was 13 years old, but I had my childhood piano in the house and It was an experience finding the right piano teacher. The first piano teacher that I had did not work for me. She said to me when I was playing, don't you ever practice? Wrong, wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't work for me. I found a piano teacher and I was able to explain to her what I wanted. Once again, like with Mr. Davis, what I wanted was to learn to play the piano for my pleasure for me to access my emotions, for my enjoyment. It was not to be in a recital and not to show anybody how good I was at the piano. It was just for my own pleasure. And in the process of doing that, 
I make mistakes and I have to laugh at myself when I make the mistakes. And when I'm learning this skill, I'm continually amazed how my brain is able to make new pathways. And sometimes, without realizing it, my hands just go to the right place. Sometimes I don't need to look at the music. And I'm not trying to memorize the music for playing. It just happens. And as you're describing your previous piano teacher, I'm kind of pairing that with what you said about Senor Davis. And that is that in both cases, you were very careful about selection. And I know you were very careful about of teacher, that you were making sure that it was a good match because just staying with somebody due to loyalty, even though they are not a good match, would not work for you. And being able to direct the teacher towards your learning style to see if they are able to actually teach in that manner. And from that place, determining is this a match or not. For sure. And it's also being honest with my teacher. So at one point, when I told my teacher that I was going on a trip, my current teacher, who I adore, she said, oh, your piano will fall behind. You won't be able to continue learning because you're going to be gone too long. And I had to remind her. I said, I'm studying piano for my pleasure. And it pleases me to travel and go places. And I really like doing that. And I want to learn the piano, but I want to learn it my way. You know, as I hear you say that, I'm thinking about something, I think it was attributable to Arthur Rubinstein, who was after he played a beautiful piano concerto, somebody said, I would give anything to play like you. And he said, I did. As I hear you saying that, you're saying, I'm not willing to. This piano is just for my pleasure. I'm not exactly. going to be an Arthur Rubenstein. But the other thing that I'm really appreciating here is how long had it been since you'd played the piano? It seems like one of the other tips would be look at what you used to love and bring it back to life or take a look at something that is awesome. But how long had it been since you'd actually touched a piano? I stopped touching the piano at age 13 and... I probably started at age 79. So it had been a 66-year hiatus. Yes. And what was it like to recultivate a relationship with something you hadn't really done in well over 20,000 days? It was really hard and not hard. The really hard part was I had to relearn how to read music. I had forgotten. And I had to learn where to put my fingers on the piano keys. and required practice. It required some work. And I had to commit to myself that I was willing to practice a certain amount each day. And many people would find that all the more frustrating because even if it's, I mean, obviously 66 years is a long hiatus, but for many of us, getting back into cycling is something I haven't done in, say, north of a decade. And a lot of us remember who we were when we last sat in the saddle of a cycle and then 10 years elapses and we're not able to bike nearly as well. And it can be discouraging. What are your thoughts on the discouraging aspects of reinvigorating a previous relationship with a love, a skill? If you change what you're doing it for, what your goals are, to what they really are, your goals, and then you have to decide, are you willing to put the time in? Is this something that you want to spend your time with? Well, making music is something I wanted to put my time in too. So I'm willing to do it. 
it's just as simple as that. And what are some other things that you're hoping to learn or that you are considering at this moment or perhaps that you already have put into action or learning or relearning? Well, I'm doing a lot of studying of different things. I have a computer lesson once a week, a piano lesson once a week. I work with a posture therapist. I'm learning to walk correctly (laughs) from a posture therapist. And it's enhancing my old age. It really is. And I'm open to whatever comes across my horizon, so to speak. I am just really open to spending time with my grandsons when I can. And I love that because it it brings to me a richness that as a grandfather, I think I'm a better grandfather than I was a father. You're still a good dad. Uh, A lot of who I am is attributable to one of your strongest suits, and that was that you would allow any feeling in the room. You never told me that the feelings were nonsense or trivial. And so that's been really important to me. So I just want to name that. I believe it. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you also had to, I would actually go so far if it's okay to go down this lane and you can tell me if it's not, to say that your love of learning and willing to shape shift, so to speak, has maybe saved your life. At the age of 67 in 2006, you had a cardiac event and it required either stents or open heart surgery. And you and I were really just grilling the two doctors to see which course. It's less interesting what course of action you took and more interesting that after the procedure, you needed to learn new things, meditation. For you, a New York guy who's doing five things at once, that was really hard. You became a vegan. You had to learn all these new things and you stuck with all of those things. Can you talk a little bit about that whole phenomenon? It became obvious to me that it was a matter of survival. If I wished to live out a normal lifespan, I had to make changes. And I couldn't just go on the way I did. So the veganism I came to only maybe eight years ago, but I started with being a vegetarian. And then I gradually became aware that it was vastly better to be a vegan. So I did it. And it just is so important for me to be able to live in this world and to know how to handle things. My own father had trouble turning on the television set Mm. because the television got too complicated for him. I don't want that for my life. I want to know how to work with my computer. I want to know how to do the things that I'm hoping to do and not have people do them for me. Another lane that I'd like to consider going down, if we can, and that is 1986. You decided to really pivot big time, and you, while being a physician, entered a 12-step program. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? When I was 50, I learned that doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result is a form of insanity. And so I joined a 12-step program and it took me a long time. I made some initial adjustments and at the end of the year I had lost maybe 25 pounds and 
what was really great about it was that I was able to maintain that for about 32 years. I had never maintained a constant weight in my whole life. And then after that, I realized I wasn't really at the weight that I wanted to be. And when the pandemic came, I had this opportunity to not eat out so often. And I started just watching volumes rather than just not eating cake, candy, cookies, ice cream, and chocolate. And I'm finally at the weight I should be. And that's phenomenal and laudable. To me, as a psychologist, the more interesting thing is the intrinsic benefits of having joined and looking at the root causes of what may have caused you to engage in the behavior that wasn't serving you. And you really became more aware of these shadows in your life that you weren't really aware of, these invisible processes that were causing you this behavior. Some things in my childhood that didn't go so well, I was able to remember them and deal with them with a psychologist. That really helped a lot. And delightfully, at least to me, you entered kind of what was referred to loosely back then as kind of the men's movement. You learned from people like Robert Bly, James Hillman, and one of my very favorite human beings on the planet, Michael Mead. And you'd go to these events and you were just energized and transformed and seeing things differently and challenging yourself and getting outside your comfort zone. You were really uncomfortable with certain aspects of it, but you went for it anyway. Can you just kind of talk about that thing? Yeah, I remember being aware of the men's movement and what I took from it was that Robert Bly and Michael Mead talked about when the Industrial Revolution started, that men went to work in the factories and stopped being really the child raiser in their family. So men were being brought up by their mothers to be men. Well, that wasn't a really good way of having men learn how to be men. And I could really identify with that because in my era, my father viewed his responsibility as working and earning money for the family. And it was always my mother that was, she was in charge of the child rearing in our house. And when I joined the men's group, I was suddenly in with other men and hearing what men's reaction were to different things. And it was eye-opening for me. It was just wonderful. And I learned to be quite comfortable with being in a room with a thousand other men. That's awesome. And one of the things I, because I know you know that you're not saying that a boy who identifies as male, who's raised exclusively by his mother, you're not lambasting that process, but you're saying that it's an incomplete process, that having a male masculine voice is also important and that you were able to supplement that through this activity of hanging out with guys and not just talking about things that guys always talk about, which are the safe topics, sports, current events, cars, technology. You were talking about your heart with men and really going places and being very vulnerable, of course, safely vulnerable, not with men who would publicly harm you in any way, shape or form. You knew that it was safe to be vulnerable, but it seems like that was one of the things that was really missing for you and that you were able to find out in the real world since you couldn't get it in your native family. Yes. And men growing up in my generation were taught that men don't cry. And I believe that I cried when I was under five years old 
And I don't think I cried again until I was in my 50s. And now I cry almost every day. That when something moves me, I'm able to feel tears. Sometimes it's tears of joy. Sometimes it's tears of sadness. But I didn't know that that was possible for me. And I learned that through the men's movement, being in a men's group, and actually by going to movies, it actually started that I allowed the movie to move me. And then once I realized that I could feel emotions because I didn't know that I could feel emotions. And that was really learning. I remember being exposed to a poem by Robert Bly called At My Father's Wedding. And it talked about loneliness, about the loneliness of being a male. And I felt that. And I no longer feel like I'm in that poem. Wow. That's really powerful. And before we wrap things up, I would be remiss if I didn't explore your relationship with the opera. That has been a really important part of your life. And that has also been, in some ways, the opera has been your midwife to emotions over the years as I see it. But can you describe your relationship with opera itself and what you love about it, why you're so compelled by it and what it has done for you? Well, that's a really good way of putting it because when I was in the fifth grade, I talked my upstairs neighbor into taking me to the opera and I fell in love with the opera. And I don't know why I fell in love with the opera. I didn't have any peers that wanted to go to the opera with me. Even though I lived in New York City, I went to the opera alone. And what I was able to do in the opera was to just get a sense of accessing emotions that I could feel something, maybe not the kind of emotions that I'm able to feel now, but it opened up a door for me that I couldn't open myself. And it opened up a door to beauty. And it opened up a door to conflict, internal conflict, because in many operas, the characters are struggling between spirituality and sensuality. Well, teenage boys do that. (laughs) I was one of them. And this gave me an opportunity to experience that on my own. And as a teenage boy, I didn't have anybody to discuss it with. But when I entered that world, it brought me great pleasure. I can remember some performances that were just extraordinary. Yeah, and I think they've given you so much life in your years, these operatic moments. And we just as recently as Sunday enjoyed Falstaff together. And it's really cool to see the opera through your eyes and hear about what you experience with it and your profound knowledge of this beautiful art, this timeless art. It almost seems like you don't just see it for its aesthetic purposes, but it's a really a full-bodied, multi-dimensional experience that you also, it informs your psyche and your intellect, that you become smarter over time from enjoying the opera. So I really appreciate that. One of the things I want to ask you is, Dad, what's it like for you to talk with me in this context? It feels very normal. <laughs> it feels easy. You have a way of making me feel comfortable. Oh, I'm so glad to hear it. Well, we're getting toward the end of the interview, but 
One of the things I've appreciated about you over the years, Dad, is that you don't lean into regret. You have regrets over the years, but it seems that you pay some attention to them, but you don't lean into them. And I'm wondering, kind of with that in the background, obviously there are things that you wish you had known way back when that you're only beginning to learn now. And I'm wondering, what do you wish you had known then that you know now that has been so important in your life? I remember one of my grandson's teachers asked me a question in Grandparents' Day. And I think the biggest lesson I've learned is about other people. And that if I have a friend who treats others badly, eventually he will treat me badly. I've learned not to accept that behavior from other people, to just let go of that kind of a friend. That's one thing. Another thing is listen more, speak less. (laughs) And the other is that my completing the job isn't more important than how others feel and to pay attention to what's going on in my life with the important people for me, that it's more important to notice them and take action, stop what I'm doing rather than get the job done. Yeah. So there's something about the process and not just the outcome that really matters. Yeah. Wow. That's a massive insight. Is there anything I haven't asked, but should have? I would like to tell your listeners, be open to what needs there are in the world. In 2003, my wife and I were in Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe, and we came upon the poorest primary school we'd ever seen. It's called the Chamabondo School, and there were 1,200 students in three classrooms. There was almost no chairs or desks. Many of the students were outside in the yard and sitting in the ground. And we decided we wanted to help that school. For the last 20 years, we have been raising money for the school. Initially, it was for desks and chairs and for learning equipment, including a computer lab. We got involved with the San Jose East Evergreen Rotary to support that and Rotary International. And now we're raising money to help poor students finish school because every child has to pay $165 for tuition. And the children who are AIDS orphans don't have that kind of money or children who have only one parent don't have that kind of money. And so we've been raising money for that. And when we started, we helped a young girl by the name of Abigail and she was in primary school and didn't have enough money to continue in primary school. And this year she's in the university and this is a child that would have had to drop out of primary school for lack of money. And this has been so rewarding. I feel so good about it. And I feel really good that you and your wife are helping us. Dear listener, my wife and I actually by coincidence, happened to be visiting four countries in the southern tip of Africa, one of which happened to be Zimbabwe. So of course, we went to the school that you sponsored and we got to learn about what 
it was like before you showed up and we saw the effects like of what it has become. It's amazing. Well then, dad, my final question. If you had the magical abilities to confer upon all humanity one insight or skill that would dramatically improve the life of the individual as well as society at large, what would that insight or skill be? And what do you imagine the effect would be on the individual as well as society at large? The one thing that comes to mind for me is do service, do service for other people or other groups, that it changes us and it changes the world. And if everybody did something, whatever appeals to them, that would just change the world in a a gargantuan way. I love that. What a beautiful gift. And one of the things that we also know through positive psychology is that one of the greatest ways to feel happy is to feel useful and to give of yourself in a way that's meaningful to you. I love the idea of each of us giving from different places because each of us comes with different gifts and doing something that is really true and kind of your best offering. So, oh, wonderful, Dad. It's been so much fun to prepare to meet with you. It's been so much fun to meet with you. And I just, I can't wait to share this with my listeners. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it, or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.